Hey, good morning, family. Jared here. Um, I just want to start by saying thank you, Duff Rowden, for leading us in worship this morning. So grateful that you would step in and give our team a break and, and just serve the people of all of life. So all of life, please uh, thank him, make eye contact with him, encourage him, and just let him know that you're grateful. And most of all, follow his lead and sing with him too. Um, if you're new with us, thanks for gathering. Uh, we're glad that you are here. This is a bit of an uh, this is a bit of a one-off um, instance where many of you may know, some of you may not, uh, that I currently have COVID and I'm at home, just isolating and recovering, uh, recovering well. I've got some mild symptoms. But all in all, things are good. So uh, what we're doing this morning is closing out Matthew chapter 4. This is really a summary statement that Matthew brings us where he, uh, he opens up for us the whole of Jesus's ministry. And he really summarizes Jesus's ministry. So uh, the idea is that Jesus comes to you and I, not just ministering to our minds and our souls, but he also comes to us ministering, um, bringing care and compassion to our bodies as well. So turn to Matthew chapter four. It's the first book in the New Testament. Use the table of contents or one of the black Bibles around the room. Uh, Matthew chapter four verses 23 and uh, 23 through 25 this morning. This is God's word. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame or his glory spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is God's word. Father, would you minister to us through your word, through the ministry and life of your son, through the indwelling Holy Spirit who is with us. Teach your people, transform your people, and cause us to respond to you in obedience. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Jesus comes here as the provider king who takes care of his people's holistic health. He doesn't only care for our souls and our minds, but he also cares for our bodies and for the whole person. This is good news to some of us. Uh, Jesus is not just about your theology, but he's also about your biology and your physiology. Uh, Matthew shows us three ways that Jesus comes to his people and brings help. And each of these three ways, through his teaching, through his proclamation or preaching, and also through healing, each of these three ways, they form a compelling picture of why following Jesus is our good and our needed response. So I'm just going to give us a summary here on teaching, preaching, and healing. Uh, when it comes to teaching, it's not advisable to follow a person, um, to follow someone who can't see what you can see. Why would you follow somebody who can't see what you already have the ability to see? But the truth is, is that Jesus comes seeing what we don't. And not only that, but he comes seeing, in many cases, what we won't. He knows 
all the way to the bottom what's in our hearts. When it comes to preaching, you don't follow someone who doesn't know what you know. Preaching and proclamation, it's announcement. And so Jesus comes announcing a kingdom that no one had on their radar. No one had the capacity to know a kind of kingdom like this existed before he spoke of it. Uh, The New Testament refers to Jesus as both the wisdom and the power of God. And so this authoritative one, he comes proclaiming something objective, that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, those two phrases are interchangeable, is at hand, right? When it comes to not just his teaching and his preaching, but also his healing, you don't follow somebody who hates you or who is indifferent to you. But Jesus is the one who cares for you and I so deeply that he will go all the way for us, giving his very life all the way to the bottom. Uh, His apostle, a man named John, he would refer to Jesus as the good shepherd, the overseer of our souls. So if we're looking for someone worth following, we need a leader who sees what we don't, someone who can instruct us, a teacher. If we're looking for someone, uh, if we're looking for someone to follow, we need a leader who comes with a perspective that we can trust, someone who has authority. And we also need to follow a leader who shows us care, who has some degree of bedside manner because we are so dang fragile in so many ways. And what Matthew shows us in this passage is that Jesus is compassionate. One thing that you'll notice here too, even when, when you're looking at the description here of what he's doing, he's teaching in their synagogues, he's with people, he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to those who are not gathering, the crowds, not gathering in the synagogues, but also he's healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spreads throughout all Syria and they bring him all the sick, all those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he heals them. We see that Jesus is incredibly relational. He really, really, really cares about people. That's one thing that you cannot uh, miss if you're reading the Gospels is just how near Jesus is to people and how much he cares about them. He's the kind of guy who sees you. Jesus is the kind of God who sees you. An author, Dane Ortland, um, in a book called uh, Gentle and Lowly, he says this, the posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger, but open arms. That's the posture most natural to Jesus, not a pointed finger, but open arms. And, and uh, Dane notes that Jesus is not this, this he, he's, he, he doesn't act uh, this way with everyone indiscriminately. But this is who he is to those who come to him. This is who he is to those who cry out to him, to those who see their need. And so what we see in this passage is people bringing their sick friends to Jesus. And so when Matthew says that his fame spread throughout all Syria and, and this region, it's a, it's, a, it's a very large region, probably 
75 miles in radius, uh, an estimated population just in Galilee of somewhere around 300,000 people. So when Matthew is saying great crowds followed him, he's not just talking about 100 or 200 people. He's talking about thousands and thousands of people clamoring to get near, to get a glimpse, to be touched by Jesus. So when Matthew is saying that his, his fame spreads throughout this area, What he's saying is that his glory is spreading throughout this area. It's evident through how his glory is evident through how he cares for the people. And he's not just coming to get his crown as the rightful king. He is the rightful king, but he will joyfully endure a man-made cross as the pathway to his crown. The posture of Jesus is radically good. He's the exact representation of the Father, the exact imprint of the Father's nature, as Hebrew says. He's our caring good shepherd. He's our merciful once for all time sacrifice for sins. And so what Jesus comes bringing, Jesus of Nazareth, he comes bringing the comprehensive solution to what ails the world. And what he's doing is undoing the misery of humanity's bondage at the request of God our Father. Their wills are completely aligned. Now, 423 here, it it marks actually a new section in Matthew. Um, So thus far in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2, 3, and 4, Matthew, to his original audience, is presenting Jesus as a new beginning, a new genesis, the new Adam who is uh, putting right what Adam and his wife Eve got wrong in the garden. But not only a new Adam, Matthew is also presenting Jesus as a new Moses, who will ultimately deliver his people from their cruel oppressor and deliver them into uh, a life and a future of uh, fulfillment and satisfaction. Not only a new Moses, but also the promised king from David's line, whose throne would be established forever. And Matthew doesn't just present Jesus as a new Adam and a new Moses and a new Davidic king, but Matthew also presents Jesus as a new uh, Abraham, someone who has, someone who is a true Jew, who has Abraham in his family tree. Jesus is the promised Messiah. That's what Matthew is setting up in these first four chapters. But now, uh, beginning in verse four twenty, chapter four, verse twenty-three, we see Jesus as a teaching and a touching Messiah. We see him as a speaking and a doing Messiah. Now, this will be up on the screen, but notice how Jesus quotes himself almost verbatim in Matthew 9.35. So Matthew 4.23 and 9.35 are almost verbatim. He travels throughout the region. He is teaching in their synagogues. He is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom or the good news of the kingdom, and he's healing anybody who comes near. So what Matthew is doing, this is a literary technique where Matthew is essentially roping off everything between 4.23 and 9.35 and, and, and everything that occurs in between those two verses. They serve like bookends. 
Um, they are summaries of everything that occurs in between those two verses. So he's showing that Jesus is one who proclaims the kingdom and teaches the people, and he is one who heals the people as well. So um, in Matthew chapter 5, and then also 6 and 7, it's this famous sermon that Jesus preaches. It's probably a series of sermons, not just one at length, but a series of, of, um, of sermons where this is the New Testament's greatest single passage or source of Jesus's teaching. This is one of the reasons that I chose to preach through Matthew right now, because at a time of such upheaval uh, in the West, and in, per- in particular in America, we need the really direct teaching and ethic of Jesus. We need to know, without a doubt, what Jesus calls us to how he calls us to live. And so that's what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 contain. It contains his teaching and his proclamation. And then verses, or rather chapters 8 and 9 in Matthew, they are just jammed full of evidence of Jesus's healing. Occasions where he's just healing people. He's touching people. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing sick servants. He's just um, ministering to people's physical bodies and their minds and their souls. So just as a summary in Matthew 4.23 and 9.35, he's going to show us between those two locations, he's going to show us in great deal um, the scope of Jesus's ministry. Jesus comes teaching, he comes preaching, and he comes healing. So here's what I pray that happens with us. I pray the Spirit opens us up as a church and impresses the supreme value, the supreme authority of Jesus on us. Through our look at the distinct contours of Jesus, of who Jesus is through his teaching, through his preaching, through his healing. And all three of those are um, three unified aspects of Jesus's one ministry. So let's look at the first two here. Jesus comes teaching in their synagogues and he comes proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. This shows us that Jesus is both instructive and he's also authoritative. Now, oftentimes we can use teaching and preaching kind of synonymously, um, but the two really do have some significant distinctions. So I just want to drill down and define them briefly. Um, Teaching, the clearest way that I can describe teaching is to say it like this. Teaching is systematic instruction. Broadly, anything can be taught through a systematic series of steps. So if you're thinking of music theory, you can teach music theory beginning with notes and beginning with pitches and then moving to scales and modes and moving to keys and intervals and chords. You can rebuild an engine or you can build a house How through a series of systematic or interrelated steps that build one on another. So teaching is systematic instruction. Now, what is preaching? In its most basic sense, preaching is a proclamation or an announcement of something that has occurred. Uh, Preaching primarily announces the personhood and the work of God. So for Jesus to come teaching means that he's laying out systematic instructions for what it means to live as a citizen in his kingdom. 
He's laying out our ethical responsibilities, essentially. And for Jesus to come preaching, it means that he is announcing the nature of God's identity and also God's activity. Teaching places special emphasis, not only, but special emphasis on our response and understanding. And preaching places the emphasis on God's work, who he is, and his action on our behalf. And what we need is both. We need the two of these together. And so uh, Sundays is a place where both preaching and teaching Um, where both of them are elevated in the life of the church. And so we gather as a primary rhythm of our lives to be instructed by God's word, and we gather also to be reminded of Christ's work. Now, this is a primary reason. This is a word of warning. This is a primary reason why we don't scoff at or disregard what happens when the church comes together on Sundays. This is a primary reason why we continue to gather together. The people of God are called together um, to worship him, to be instructed by him, and to be reminded of him on Sundays. Now, we might not be able to measure the scope of our growth after just one Sunday together, uh, but we can surely track and see and be able to notice our growth after a year of Sundays in a father-loving, Christ-centered, Christ-exalted, Christ-exalting, rather, spirit-filled environment. Lord's Day worship, to be clear, is not the only environment for us being discipled, but it is a key environment for Jesus' people coming together being instructed, being reminded, and living out our discipleship together. So let's not disregard Sundays. This is one of the reasons that so many churches, especially in states that border ours, that are, that are, um, their lockdowns during the COVID season are way more severe than ours are. I know many of my pastor friends in Washington right now are struggling greatly with the governor's orders that they can't sing. The governor is telling them that they cannot sing together. Now, you may uh, balk at that, uh, but it's causing these uh, pastors great difficulty as they're trying to honor the Lord and also honor the governing authorities and and walk this line. And, And they have been live streaming, many of them, and not really gathering together much since March. And uh, we just, um, through the lack of being able to gather together and through witnessing what is happening um, in some of my brother's churches, it's really painful when the people can't get together or are um, restricted from getting together from the governing authorities. So let's not, in Post Falls and in the state of Idaho, let's not look down or scoff or disregard this incredible blessing of being able to gather corporately, to sing, to pray, to minister to one another, to sit under God's teaching and to be instructed and reminded of who he is, right? Now, three movements here. Jesus comes teaching in the synagogues. He comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and he comes healing all of their diseases. Uh, I'm going to take this in three parts. Jesus comes teaching in their synagogues. He's instructive. Jesus sees what you and I, what we can't see. 
Um, one of his customs, Luke's gospel tells us that it was his custom to gather in the synagogue regularly. Jesus himself did not despise or discount this rhythm of gathering. Now, the first century synagogue was a close equivalent of what the church is today or should be in our view. Um, First century Jews, they gathered every Sabbath or Saturday to sing together and to praise God, um, to pray with one another, to hear the law, the Old Testament read aloud, uh, to hear it taught and and, uh, expounded on by one of their members or one of their leaders, and then to respond to God's law in obedience. The synagogue was central to life together for devout Jews, and it's where the community um, in these various villages, it's where they centered and where they organized community life. These people were instructed by the law, and it's also where people were disciplined and corrected if they were living out of step with God's law. There were social implications as well. Now at All of Life, we gather around God's word every single Sunday to be instructed and to be reminded. A basic operating principle of Jesus coming teaching in their synagogues and also teaching us is that Jesus sees in us what we don't see in ourselves. This is why every single Sunday, when somebody is teaching, God's word is elevated in the center of the room, on the podium, visible. It's central. It's elevated. Uh, The scriptures govern our life together as a church family. So Jesus came teaching in the synagogues, but he also came proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. What's kind of under this is that he's authoritative. He's coming announcing something. He knows what we don't know. He says, the very first words of his ministry are repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Those two terms can be used synonymously. It's at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. A few weeks ago, I gave a short um, a short definition of what what God's kingdom is coined by Jeremy Treat in just eight words. Uh, And God's kingdom is this. It is God's reign through God's people over God's place. God's kingdom is God's reign through, in the heart, through the lives of his people over his place. The kingdom of God comes to humanity from God, um, from our sovereign king. Now, in this definition, the first thing that you notice is the kingdom of God is first about God's authority. It's first about his reign. The kingdom of God, as it comes to a person, overtakes the heart, reshaping our desires. Through open-heartedness to the king of the kingdom, we begin to experience radical shifts in our relational patterns. We begin to experience radical shifts in our value systems, the ethical systems by which we operate and make decisions and treat people. Uh, It begins to shift radically our way of seeing the world and our place in it. And so when the kingdom of God comes home to you, comes home to me, comes home to a person, all, all of who it comes to undergoes a radical reshaping. Sometimes it's painful. It feels uh, like a stripping. Other times it's a gentle takeover of the will. It always leads to our good. 
One thing that we learned a few weeks ago is that there are no personal kingdoms in God's kingdom. The kingdom of God transforms us entirely. I grew up as an only child, so it's safe to say that my life uh, revolved around me. Now, I can feel your judgment (laughs) right now, even just at the notion uh, that I'm an only child. But here's what's true. Uh, The majority of my life, I've been filled with self-concern. I'm still incredibly concerned about myself. And so my natural inclination is to measure everything through the lens of how it's going to affect me. Uh, If I don't like how something is going to affect me, eh, you know, no thanks. Um, If I desire something, but I need to give it up for the good of another person, there's probably going to be uh, some struggle at hand as I get a hold of what's going on in me internally. Now, some of you, this idea of self-concern over being overly concerned with self, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're disproportionately concerned with yourselves. This is not relegated to only children. I think this is a human condition. Now, Since I've been following Jesus uh, uh, on a a consistent basis, in a consistent way, um, it's been, uh, I began to follow Jesus consistently in 2004. Since that time, he has been objectively prying my will away from self-concern and toward open-hearted submission to him. That's the work that he has been doing in my life. I am hardwired. I am hard formed through a series of life decisions that I have made for self-concern. So are you. So are you. Now what's happening though, as Jesus's reign becomes more and more evident in our lives is that he is rewiring me. He's rewiring you through his reign in and through us to show me as an example, he's showing me over time how I am all about me. And he's doing it for a purpose so that I will begin looking to him so that I can like Jesus did, begin to say through his spirit in me, not my will, but your will be done. This is, a, this, this is the actual, like outworking the process of repentance. Now, remember, repentance is not a thing to be rejected. Uh, it is a thing to be loved. Repentance is a thing to be embraced. Repentance is not the bad Catholic knuckle-busting religious repentance that we tend to think of or that's maybe portrayed in media. Gospel repentance does not mean self-punishment. Gospel repentance does not mean beating yourself up, but to repent rather according to the gospel is to embrace the grace of God. To repent is to receive his invitation to communion with him, to access to him, and to close. Repentance is two steps into the kingdom. Repentance is never two steps out of the kingdom. You can think of it like this. A friend of mine, a pastor in Colorado named Mark, um, he he says it like this. Religious repentance says, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. Gospel repentance says, I messed up. I need to call my dad. 
there's a fundamental difference in how we relate to one another. Religious repentance is all about retribution and consequence and punishment. Gospel repentance is all about restoration. Gospel repentance has rescue at its center. It does not have retribution at its center. And so Jesus comes proclaiming to the crowds, to the people, this gospel of the kingdom, this good news of the kingdom, that there's one who has arrived, him, who comes to take away the sin of the world, to comes to shoulder and undo the burdens that we carry. One who, um, through whom your soul and perhaps your body will be healed. One comes, Jesus of Nazareth, He comes to serve and he comes to give his life as a ransom. He comes to teach you how to live as you are designed to live. One who comes to liberate you. One who comes to set you free by revealing the truth to you. One who comes to you promising to abide in you and showing how you may abide in him and therefore promising that through abiding, you and I will bear much fruit for his glory and the good of people around us. Jesus comes teaching. Jesus comes proclaiming. Then Jesus also comes healing, which means that he's compassionate and he's careful with you, with people. He comes as the teaching and preaching king, uh, but one thing that we can never afford to lose sight of is something that is just as true. Jesus is compassionate king. He's the compassionate king. Of his own heart in Matthew chapter 11, he describes himself as gentle and lowly. One thing to note is that he was not ever pestered. He was not ever pressured. He was not ever annoyed into healing his people physically. He was delighted. Hear this. Think about this. Think about the look on his face delighted to touch the bodies of those who are unclean, those who were suffering, those who were socially repulsive. And he was not only delighted to touch them, but to make them well, to restore wholeness to them. And so at the touch of Jesus Christ, at the intervention of Jesus Christ, who is alive today, a person like you and I finds themselves on a trajectory toward wellness. This is the truth of the gospel, the reality of the gospel. We find ourselves on a trajectory of wellness, whether it's physical wellness, whether it's relational wellness, whether it is mental and emotional wellness, whatever it might be, life lived in an open-hearted way to the king, we experience transformation through our open-heartedness to him. Now, we see in this passage that um, compassionate friends, they bring their sick friends to Jesus. Matthew doesn't really present them yet as disciples, and so many of them are probably not disciples. Maybe they, many of them, uh, they care about their friends, but they're just looking for a quick fix. Yet, uh, what we see is that they do come to Jesus believing that he could and would 
heal their friends. His healing power is so comprehensive. Look at verse 24. His fame spreads throughout all of this region of Syria, and they bring him all the sick, those who are afflicted with various diseases and various pains, ailments, those who are oppressed by demons, those who are epileptics, paralytics, comma, and he healed them. That is, um, it, it's incredible to see the heart of Jesus towards the crowds. I think in a crowd, it's really easy to miss individuals. It's easy to miss people. Uh, but what I think that Matthew is showing to us in an indirect way is that Jesus sees every person and he meets every person's needs. Jesus, who is alive today, sees every one of his people. He calls people to himself and he meets needs. You have needs. I have needs. There are those of us in our church who desire physical healing. You're struggling physically. You're hurting. You're regularly confronted by the weakness in your own physiology and biology. And your heart is crying out to your Savior for physical healing. There are those of us in our church visiting today in our world who are in need of miraculous relational healing. Significant relationships in your life are so broken that they feel and seem completely beyond repair. And if it's up to you or if it's up to the inner, the, the other individual to reconcile, it's just not going to happen. You need supernatural, miraculous intervention. Are you willing to get real with the fact that that is what is true? There are those who need miraculous emotional healing. You've been hurt and you've been harmed. And your emotions and your thought life suffer. And you need healing. Some of us who are so entrenched in addiction that you need miraculous liberation. The answer is not in yourself, but you need someone exterior to you to intervene and to rescue you from what you cannot seem to extrapolate yourself from. Some are lonely and your soul is just lonely for human companionship and relationship. So here, if that names you, maybe the Holy Spirit is naming something else in you that you're greatly struggling with that I haven't said. Give your ear to him. And here's my final exhortation this morning. May we keep our eyes fixed, fixed on the healer. And as our eyes are fixed on our healer, Jesus Christ, may we then chase down with vigor and with gusto and with uh, perseverance, 
every means that he provides to us to find freedom. The common grace of medicine, the common grace of connection, the common grace of confession and uh, and apologies. Common, uh, maybe you need counseling. Uh, you need to sit with somebody who can help you see your addiction or your patterns of belief or thinking that can help to free you. Should those in this passage who were healed... Um, should they have wished to keep their sickness private, one thing is true, they never would have received the healing of Jesus. They never would have been touched by the healer. And their friends knew about their challenges and their friends interceded on their behalf. So here's the question. Where do you struggle greatly? Do your friends know? Are there people with you today who know your struggles? And can you venture to ask that they would intercede on your behalf and bring you before our great King who sees what you can't, who knows what you don't, and who cares for you all the way to the bottom? all the way to his last breath. Amen. Duff, if you would come up right now, we're going to enter in, church, you're going to enter into a time of communion. This is something that we celebrate and that we practice together. We remember the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We remember it every single week. Communion is our reminder of just how far Jesus Christ goes for his church, that the Son of God would leave his glory at the Father's side and take on humanity, become a human, uh, the King of heaven born in a stable. His whole life would be lived in service of our redemption. He would love his people, come to his own, and his people would reject and despise him. The mighty king would give his life finally at the cross as our ransom. And so and in that place, arms stretched out, hands and feet nailed to a bloody, brutal Roman cross, our sin would be laid on him. And in that moment, he would cry out, it is finished. And for all who believe in his substitutionary work on our behalf, his righteous perfection is credited to you, not just one day, but forever. All along, this has been the mission of Jesus. But for so long, we have been so full of self-concern that we missed his glory. That is, until he opened our eyes. He opened her, our eyes. He intervened. He interceded so that we could see his glory. And we didn't just recognize his glory, that he's the only son who has come from the Father, but we've also begun to recognize his authority and to love it. We begin to recognize his dominion, and we love it, and it's a, it's a great comfort to us. We begin to recognize his power over all things, Satan's sin, sickness, death, 
No, we begin to recognize his majesty. And so Jesus Christ has come with a personal word to you and I to see his heart, to embrace his teaching, and to yoke ourselves to him. Once God haters and self-lovers, he's turning us around to our original design through the work of his spirit in us. And if you have never entrusted yourself to Jesus, who is at the right hand of the Father, now is the time to entrust yourself to him in belief and in faith that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Humble yourself and cry out to him. Your voice will not be overlooked. Your face will not be overlooked. He sees you. And if you entrusted yourself to him this morning, it's time right now to entrust and open your heart to the teacher again, to this preacher, to the healing king. And so church, let's go to the table with open, grateful hearts. One word of warning. If you're not a believer, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, You want to believe, but you're not quite there. Refrain from going to the table. There is no peer pressure in the room. We love you. We hope that you will um, eventually have your hands pried open to see the real Jesus as he is and to come to him, your will fully engaged in submission to him. But until that time, communion is not for you. I love you, church. Pray for me. Pray for one another. Carve out some space this morning to get honest and to minister to one another. You're loved. Amen.